Alright, this is Dan and Cafe Ninja coming at you with a Hacker Public Radio episode of book review and discussion of Atlas Shrugged. Say hello to our audience there, Cafe Ninja. Hello, audience. Yes. And for those who who do not know, Atlas Shrugged is Ayn Rand's opus for her her uh, piece de resistance of objectivism, and uh, it's a it is an interesting read. It is a very long read, and I would categorize it as philosophical. Fiction, non-fiction, or not, philosophical science fiction slash mystery. I don't know if you'd agree with that. It has the elements of those. I wouldn't disagree. And just to give a little synopsis of the... Do you want to give a little synopsis of the book, or should I? No, you go ahead. You go ahead. Okay. Well, let me ask you a question before we get too far into it. When did you read the book? I read the book uh, in early 2010, so about eight months ago. Oh, so we're not too far away from um, when, when we read this, because I, I had read it, I started it a year ago, and I finished it like, I think it was like at the early 2010 myself. I don't exactly remember the date, I could look it up. But so we, we both, it's pretty fresh in our minds. It's not Correct. too far away. So, okay. Correct. Anyway. Atlas Shrugged tells the tale of a of of a railroad quote railroad tycoon we could call her um, a railroad company. Um, the main character, her name is Dabney Taggart. She's the vice president of Taggart Transcontinental Railroad, and it describes her life up to becoming the vice president, and mostly in flashbacks, and then the issues that she faces in trying to maintain and expand the railroad in a political and economic environment that is completely against Ayn Rand's philosophy of objectivism. Um, that there's a lot of collectivism and statism involved in the reflection of the economy and the trials that she has to go through to try and transcend the economy and the political environment and struggle against this to achieve her goals that she would like to achieve. Um, that's kind of like a really high level kind of looking down at it and doesn't really make the book sound too appealing. But it's it's no, it's an it interesting. <laughs> no, that was kind of dry. <laughs> Let me try again. There, it's like, it, it is. It, Dabney Taggart's the main character, and she's the vice president of Taggart Con Transcontinental Railroad, and she she embodies the character of what Ian Rand would be someone transitioning into um, her philosophy of objectivism, and the realization that she has, you know, in in trying to take her life's work, which is the railroad, and trying to do the best that she can and the trials that she faces along the way, the ultimate successes and failures that she has. And at the same time, there's other people in the story that are 
going through the same process. Some succeed and some fail. And throughout the story, there's one character that's upheld as the true ideal. And you've probably heard this repeated in popular culture, the phrase, who is John Galt? And John Galt is like the epitome of objectivism, in her, the hero of the novel, so to speak. And the mystery surrounding John Galt and his group of people is revealed in this book uh, and what it means to Dabney, to Hank Reardon, who is uh, her love interest, also you know, a very prominent main character in the book, who also embodies a character in transition to objectivism, um, and how they work together to build their, for lack of a better word, I don't want to say necessarily empire. It is an empire, but it's, it's their life's work. And to achieve the pinnacle in life without having to sacrifice their individuality or their dreams. You know what? Why don't you give your your little synopsis of the book yourself? Well, okay, the synopsis you gave was accurate, and it is, I'm not going to lie, a dry read. However, and it is profound. There is huge character development. There's major plot turns. I wouldn't say twists. It's not that kind of roller coaster sort of ride. However, there are bends and curves to the entire plot that change like bends in the Mississippi River. Uh, they're mammoth and they're they're huge. But it there are many levels on which this book is having a discussion. Political, economic, um I try to put it in the context of the time it was written and by whom. So we're talking about a, a lady who was born in the early 1900s in Russia, which then became Soviet Russia, which she left. And we're talking about her public, uh, making this publication in 57, so around the same time as the Orwells and the Asimovs were writing about their political commentaries about also political states in the world, for example, Soviet Russia and uh, socialist Europe and things of this nature. So there's a lot of capitalism going through the book. There's a lot of... Uh, she, she, she really hits on... The, it's, I don't want to say business-centric. It, it, it hovers around because Dabney is so engrossed in her work which is her, her family's company, and she's passionate about it, and she's, she, she's driven by it. A lot of it, the tangents of the conversation arrive to Dabney, from my perspective, via the mechanism of the business. Yes? So there's, there's many different things that transition through the business but become, obviously, a, a multi-level conversation. And... While it's a slow, long read, I can say it, it moved me. At the end, I actually came away feeling something that which um, a lot of books don't really move me to, to either reinforce, affirm, or deny something I felt before I read the book. But this one did, and it's, it's, it's a very powerful read. I, I agree completely with you. I, I don't see how you could read this book and, and not come away 
seriously shaken at the very least probably changed in some respects um, for how you uh, view the world because you know when you were talking about the twists and turns I mean there were points in this book where it, it was just like the way that she explained what was going on and you, you see like they're going in one direction and all of a sudden you know it's just like brick wall out of nowhere and it just elicits such a strong uh, emotional response in me at least to say man it, it was just so frustrating to, to actually to feel that that you know here are fictional characters yet these roadblocks that come up are extremely frustrating and there's stuff that you can see that was going on in that time period and still going on today Absolutely. You can see you can see things like that happening, and see how it is extremely frustrating. And with regards to it being tied to their business, to their work, I mean that's one of the tenets of her philosophy of objectivism is, you know, being a productive person. That that is what yeah. life is. One of the main tenets of life is producing. That if Correct. you are not producing something then you're not living up to your potential in life now to give Anne Rand also her credit and her due she wrote this as the as the launching piece mouthpiece of objectivism her philosophy and I didn't I wasn't aware of it when I read the book uh, as the book had gotten some recent press and stir I just decided to to get it and read it, I, I wasn't fully aware of how it had become then her philosophical launch pad from which many other works and she had a whole series of speeches and everything else that she did after. I had no idea about that until after and I can obviously, going back, I can definitely say it was there. It was it was clearly there. But what I took away from it in in when I was reading the book, it really felt like, and that could be my personal experience I'm bringing to the book, of course, it felt like a very powerful statement of uh, capitalism versus socialism versus communism at the time. Yeah, no, I, I, I agree with you. Um, and I thought it also, it really challenged me in regards to looking at how I look at my life and my relationships with people and what I see going on in society locally, uh, at a state level, at a country level, at a global level, um, and, you know, looking at the points that she makes regarding capitalism and socialism and you know welfare and altruism and helping people and how how that actually plays out not only in one's personal life but on a, on a grand scheme on a global scale and I found that extremely challenging um, to, to my personal beliefs because I had I had grown up in an environment where my parents took in kids from, you know, horrible backgrounds. And 
those kids, those kids' parents, you know, were 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 securing aid from the state. Obviously, you know, the state, the the uh, city, the state was involved in their home environments to take them out and put them in foster homes, and to work with the parents to try and get them at a level off of drug addiction, you know, in some kind of uh, economic stability, which was most likely welfare, whatever it is, so that the kids can go back and they can live in a family life. And that trans transition into, you know, helping those same kids in a counseling-type position in families later on in life. And the frustration that you see with that, and, you know, when you read a book like this, and her idea is... Basically, you know, you need to do it yourself. What it comes down to, you are in control of yourself. You are responsible for yourself and becoming a producer and taking care of yourself. Don't depend on the state. The state should not help you out. Don't depend on the uh, altruism of other people. You know, from uh, in the book itself, one of the things that keeps coming around that is one of the roadblocks to to the main characters um, moving forward with their production is the fact that they say stuff like, you know, what comes down, the state passes laws and restrictions that say, okay, we're going to regulate how much you can produce so this company over here can catch up. Well, this company that you read in the book is a bunch of slackers and they're just, you know, twiddling their thumbs and they got some guy on the board over there, some lobbyist, you know, saying to the to the politicians, hey, you know, cut us some slack. If we go down, we're taking all these people with us. Why, you know, limit the, what this guy's doing over here, one of the heroes of the story, put the shackles on him so we can catch up. You know, stuff like that. And it, it kind of, it really, it really challenged me to say, because I'm, I usually fall down on a more altruistic side and say that, you know, for me, I need to do the best that I can do. But yet at the same time, I understand that there's people out there that are struggling and they might need help. But Ayn Rand would say, well, it, well, don't yeah, do that. Well, there's a difference between you using your extra energy to help that person or you just, you know, if you charge too far ahead, the whole pack looks bad. That's where you're, that's the distinction between being altruistic and then maybe not not satisfact satisfying your potential and she addresses that in the book as well but i mean uh, she describes situations that blew me away she 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 basically in 1957 this lady who came from russia described the too big to fail a situation with which we've seen in 2009 2010 uh, she described the that exact balancing of production between uh, market industries. I've, my father-in-law was retired at, at a very young age because they closed the steel plant here in Italy where because Germany said Italy was making too much steel. So in response, instead of taking all the factories in Italy and reducing their output by 20%, they closed 20% of the factories. Boom, gone. And because it was it's a socialized state, they were retired. So my father-in-law from a very young age in his early 40s has been retired. 
And how has that has that impacted on him? I mean, has that? Well, actually, not him so much. I mean, the entire southern part of Italy is yeah. is more or less an economic a nightmare. It looks. <laughs> I mean, uh, compared to northern Italy, which which maintained the industrial sector that remained after changes like that through the mostly through the 70s, um, left such a massive footprint and hole in the economy of the southern part of Italy uh, that they they've never really recovered. I mean, to the point to where there is a very small political party in northern Italy who wants to separate and make a, a different country. And you see that time and again in the novel. Exactly. That, that, ver exactly. that very same thing happening. And it always ends the same way. I mean, every region that they stick their fingers into like that, it ends in the same way. Horribly. Yeah. It does. Horribly. And it is... It is. I'm not going to go all the way out and say I agree 100% with objectivism, but it makes a compelling observation and an argument for a lot of these things. Well, what I really liked is that she moderated it. She put it... She didn't just flat out come out and say capitalism is the best and only way but what she said was capitalism with morality, um, a, a balanced one for one. Uh, no, no one uh, lopsiding the scales just because scales can be lopsided. You know, I, if if you perceive something I produce of a value of one, and I perceive something you—I don't want to say barter system, but but pretty close. When when we can say that the thing the other has has a value of one. We can trade that. That's something we can trade on an honest, fair scale. No trickery. No, ha-ha, I, I gotcha. If you read the fine print, it says two to one. You know, none of that. Just kind of, I, I keep thinking of, it's almost in my head, it, it's, <laughs> she left Mayberry. So Mayberry, USA is exactly where she would have preferred, I think, it be. <laughs> yeah, th that's, you know, when you bring up that whole concept of, of morality, fairness, justice, um, honesty, integrity, pride, I mean, those are some of the highest standards, you know, what they regard as, objectivists regard as high standards. One of the things that, that people would say to me when they found out that I was reading Rand and Atlas Shrugged um, was there was people who have some idea of her philosophy turned their nose up at it. Uh, and, and what I kept hearing time and again was the idea of what she calls rational self-interest, uh, selfishism. Um, they took that as a negative connotation, being selfish uh, and living only for oneself, screw everybody else, everybody be damned. And as I read the book, and I had that in the back of my mind, that people had, you know, said that it's you know, selfish in a negative light, what I read, what she actually said in the book mm -hmm. about selfishism is not in a negative connotation. 
it is you know living and achieving one's own goals and being a, you know focusing on oneself but yet in a way that you maintain being moral and just and with integrity that it's not hedonism it's not just going out and doing whatever the hell you want to do because that's what you want to do it's selfish being selfish like that but it's it's putting yourself first and not acting in a manner that is contrary to preserving yourself and stepping on anybody else it is exercising your free will and your liberty and your right to pursue of liberty of happiness and production but not at the expense of anybody else true uh, the I not, think not uh, objective as I anybody else exactly Sorry, well when I reflect on the book and the and the and the selfish portion that that I'm sure most people refer to is a very specific incident in the book which is slightly callous, slightly cold, slightly harsh, and that is between two brothers, one who is an industry pioneer and another who is a, a, a leech of a brother who doesn't have a job, has no useful skills or talents, and he basically oh, yeah. is asking for handouts. Give me a job. Why? Because I'm your brother. No. What can you do? Nothing. Then no job. <laughs> so while that is... When, when you look at it under a microscope... It's very callous. It's very mean. It's very. It 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 would describe a situation where any form of social welfare programs could be suspect. But that, I don't think that's really what she was intending. What she was intending was, if you're a person of I mean, flashback, where the entrepreneur had made himself important and and uh, productive and pertinent to the work he was just asking his brother to step up and do the same provide me a skill can you type I'll give you a job no okay I'm not giving you a job <laughs> I mean it's just no handout is really what he was talking about and I, I can honestly say that I don't think that she would ever say that for example a welfare program like what we have in the states is something that it shouldn't have I I, I have heard lots of stories about welfare situations in the states where it was used exactly the way it was supposed to. I, I had an, a distant aunt who had had lost her husband, had no insurance, had a heart condition. She went on welfare, which covered the intervention to take care of her heart, and once she recovered and she got a job, she got off welfare. That that's what it was ever designed to be. So I would say that it's not really the program; it's the fact that, and 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 describes also people who abuse those kind of programs in in her book, and <laughs> the troubles that that the the troubled road that travels. So you can see a lot of examples I mean it's it also depends on how far you drill down into each situation in the book and how far you drill out and take it as a philosophical example or or try to um, interpret uh, more or less meaning in the interactions she describes but she had I have to confess through the entire book it is gu guided by reason 
while there are oh, yeah. a few a few actions that are really you know emotionally uh, purely emotional emotionally driven the, the most of the characters could be Vulcan I mean to a fault the there's a lot of reason a lot of rationale a lot of very clear thinking you could tell that this the, the lady who wrote this book was a very rational thinker she was not probably prone to flights of fancy no not at all and that example that you had given about the callousness that could be perceived as being very callous um, mm. I could see that but I also had a hard time you know disagreeing with uh, exactly with reaction because yeah you can look at it as being callous you know here's this guy who has made his millions millionaire has worked his ass off to build this company and he did it all on his own on his own merits this is what he produced and here's his family that are just sitting back drinking smoking throwing parties having a good time and having their hand out you know we're in this family we supported you in some way be it emotionally or family familial to be able to do whatever this is you did, but they really didn't. And here they are, you know, give me a job. He doesn't really want a job. He just wants money. Yeah, yeah, exactly. exactly. I mean, and, and, you know, to take him and put him, an unproductive person, in a position, in a job, in the company, would take away that position from somebody else who would work and be productive. And I definitely, I don't want to ask the audience if any of them have ever seen any people who were incompetent placed at key positions in their company just to watch it create havoc in situations where it did not need to be. <laughs> right. No, yeah. Um, so it, it did, it elicited a very powerful emotion at that point that I can, I agree with you that it could be seen as callous, but yet at the same time I had a hard very hard time disagreeing with the decisions that were made and saying, you know, that is the right thing to do. Or that wasn't Absolutely. the right well, thing to I, do. You should have. Well, it's all judgmental, right? But I right. think it was I think it was a very good book. I think some the 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 core economic and political points that she was trying to make with this book I think are were sound then, and they are sound even today. And if anybody has the time, resources, or, you know, want to kill four small trees, grab the book. It's, it's, it's <laughs> it a is good a read. monster. You can kill somebody <laughs> if you threw it at them. I, I, you know what? I, I, there are some dry parts in here, but yet there are some really... I thought there's... It kept me coming back. I will admit that. I did not... I started the book. I didn't stop, take break from it, or, you know, go off and read something else. I stuck with the book. And, I mean, the speech that is made that takes up a huge a quarter of the book... We'll just call it the speech so that we don't give any spoilers. Yeah. I mean, the which speech. is like... It is the meat of the book. That might have been like 
to me a little little bit it was it was a very compelling speech a little bit on the dry side compared to some of the other storytelling elements but i mean the mystery involved in here the uh some of the science fiction type stuff with the uh the, that that weapon that they they create mm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. was uh was really good the the engine um, all that stuff. The I engine, mean, just, that sounded fascinating. <laughs> that was, I love that. and That was very well you know, imagined for the, considering the time that she wrote that book and the fact mm -hmm. that if such a discovery were made today, it would still be, you know, the the priceless object that it was even in the story. Oh, yeah. What, what, is, uh, what also I found kind of interesting is, like, She's a railroad type. She's, I don't know if you want to call her a railroad type, but she's just like, Taggart Transcontinental is so important to the entire nation's welfare and economy. And yet, you know, today, when we look at society, not I don't think a lot of people consider railroads as important anymore. I agree. I, mean, I, I think, I think maybe are. the... Uh, obviously, as a as a as a vehicle or a mechanism for telling the story, she had to pick something. And in her day, mm -hmm. the railroad was the bomb. It was the shiznots. And yeah. So I mean, she picked with what she was familiar with, what she could find common material over. Uh, I'm sure. Um, I don't think there was a booming airline industry yet. <laughs> So and, I and don't trucking think that she exactly. Although I would think trucking would be far more boring than than railways, even. So. Yeah, well, <laughs> that would be. Uh, I, you know, it was the perfect thing, though. I it, it was. I, I would definitely say it's not quite as as timeless as some others. But again, when you look at uh, our banks. And the recent, you know, too big to fail and bailing out and government regulation and interjection of funds and that whole little, I don't want to call it a circle of life because it's anything but, uh, it, she, she foretold it all back then. It, yeah, it, and I, I wonder if we're going to actually learn from this or we're going to, you know probably repeat itself over and over again well um, uh, truth what I don't know is if maybe some of this was fall some of her insight to how some of these because she like I said she in the book she does cover political and economic forces and where they intersect which in, in America today you can see it all over the place and so uh, she did a very good job of, of using, of, of she, it was insightful how, how the nuances were, the impacts, the, the dominoes that happen when these are set up and they fall, in fact. And I wonder how much of that might have been, for example, fallout from having been in the States at and just after the Great Depression. Mm-hmm. I wonder if she saw some of these kind of the regulatory things that had to come into place that 
did or did not get removed that it affected industry in this way or that way. I, I don't know, but I'm, I, it's the only way I can imagine her having seen the end of a the very bad, horrible end of one of these economic cycles where suddenly a whole bunch of legislation is made. So I wonder if that gave her unique insight into what to write, which, again, we, we can see in the bailout and the bubbles of the last decade. Yeah, that. Plus, I also think yeah, there's no doubt in my mind that the whole, you know, her whole growing up in, the, through the Russian Revolution and the rise of the Bolshevik Party and everything, and, you know, what that did to her family and her status in Russia and having to leave Russia because of all that uh, and, and everything, I, I, I'm sure that that had an impact, too, that helped, helped see things in that light what she saw going on there and saw some of that going on through the depression and some of the programs and similarities between what they were talking about and some of the methods that they adopted. I, I'm wondering if that was probably a huge impact on, on her philosophy too. It is, you're right, it is, it is timely even, you know, it is, I think it's, a, it's an important read. It should not be dismissed at all. No, I, okay, whether you agree or not, I don't think it should be dismissed. Right, um, and I know that one of the things that her, her she was shunned from academic uh, philosophers, academic philosophers for a long time after she had written her work and... And I don't know, maybe maybe you can call me out on it, but honestly, I feel like uh, I enjoy reading a lot of Isaac Asimov, and he had a very distinct way of writing, which is, I consider very, um, it was popularized in that era of writers, yeah, so very dragnet, yeah, <laughs> and very, I don't want to say wordy, but they used language incredibly well and different you know, it's one of those moments where when you read it, you, you tilt your head and you go, people don't talk like that anymore, which is a shame. But uh, it was it's written in that same way, and I find that just the way that Asimov and Ayn Rand write are inherently, they're easy to read. While they're long and sometimes they get dry, they paint a wonderful picture. They They really use the words like an artist and not one syllable is wasted no I agree with you I see exactly what you're saying you are correct well I know we touched on this right before we were talking about this right before we started but uh, apparently next year the movie's coming out and I had I had it in my head that the movie existed, and when I read this book and I think of a movie, I'm uh, I always think of like an old black and white film from right after the depression that this you know this would be have been made into a film, and with that kind of style. Um, you think of the African Queen or Casablanca? Yeah, something like that. That that like that's what I see in my mind when I think of this as a movie. <laughs> not, not like something coming out next year. 
I don't know why. I just I just get that feeling. Oh God! It'll be in 3D with trains. <laughs> you know what? They're probably gonna make it in 3D, and that's gonna I don't know. But I, I uh, uh, I'm to, not be, to be fair to anyone listening to this. One, it's not gonna be any good storytelling unless they break it up into at least three movies. I can see. Yeah. Oh. Yeah. You you are right. Be a the book is terribly story. long. Just, I mean, forewarning. I, I really want everybody who listens to this to go grab the book and 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 read it, but it is terribly long. Uh, and or it's a, it's a big book, and there's no way. Like Gone with the Wind. The, uh, okay, how long was that? Gone Four and a half hours, something like that. Yeah. Uh, I can tell you. Just it was second. long. Does it have a running time but displayed? Because if you if you read Gone with the Wind and you watch the movie, there, there you can still see where things were cut out, left out, and hit the, the director's cutting room floor. On something like this, you'd have to break it up into at least three films, to which I would say, wait until the end. Wait until the trilogy is over. And then that gives you time to read the book before you watch it, because I promise you, I promise you, as much as some movies like a Harry Potter movie are disappointments compared to the original book, there is no way this is going to be done well. Especially not in one shot. No way. No, I... I yeah. Um, Gone with the Wind, 238 minutes, just under four hours. But I agree with go. you. If you are at all interested or, you know, your curiosity is piqued by this and you have an inkling to see the movie, read the book first. Definitely read the book. Because I don't see because how... Because if you go... But yeah, if they go back... Because they're going to probably change the writing. They're going to change the vocabulary of the conversation had it. If it's a modern adaptation, then it will just be horrific because the language won't even be used correctly because the power of this book is the way the words are written the speech the speech is incredibly powerful because of the words chosen and if they change any of that or if they presented in anything short of the situation presented in the book it's it's going to lose it's going to be a, a mockery it's going to be a, a joke Read the book. Read the book, kids. Yes. Read read the book. It's only... Wait. Nine... Oh, it's only a thousand... Sixty-nine pages. That's yeah, okay, not much. That's not much. I mean, it's a little more than being in nothingness. What's War and Peace? How many pages... How many... Ooh, roughly, how many pages is that? I don't know. I know. Th I know the last Harry Potter book was uh, like five hundred and something. Okay, but let's be honest about something. Okay, Harry Potter yeah. had a lot larger type than this book. Okay. Also, okay. To put it to to put it the other way, the audio book is I think forty hours, fifty hours, or something like this. It's terribly long as well. 
Most audio books are between six and eight, and this was four parts of ten hours each. Well, that's interesting. Uh, roughly ten hours. Yeah. Because I'm I'm curious to see how this compares size-wise with Ulysses, because I know that on James Joyce's birthday, they have uh, a reading of Ulysses every year, and people just go in and start reading out loud, and and. I don't know how long they, they read for, but, you know, you just have a bunch of people coming in and just continuing the reading process for the entire day, and they all read through, you know, Ulysses, which is uh, another fairly large book, long book, great book, but... Did you read Ulysses? Uh, back in school. Yeah. It's you know it is uh, it's, read the book, read the book. Atlas shrugged. Oh here we go. Uh, Atlas shrugged unabridged audiobook sixty three hours. Woo. Is it the <laughs> same person reading? I'm sorry. Is it the same person? Oh, reading? through the whole book. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Yes. That must have been a hell of a lot of work. That, yes. That one should have paid uh, overtime. Definitely. Well, anything else you want to say about the book? Anything else you want to say about uh, the About the book, no, but I, I definitely want to give a shout-out to atlasshrug.com, uh, which is oh, very yeah, well-organized, succinct, and has, yeah, it's pretty, has, has all the details and links to go buy the book and... Apparently the book has a Facebook page. Yeah, yeah. You can follow. Uh, you can follow them on and Twitter. You can follow them on Twitter. <laughs> where where it will shout at you endlessly to go get a job. At the <laughs> Ian Rand Institute. Uh, you can follow oh, on wow. Twitter. I don't know. I don't know if it's worth yeah. following on a social network, but it's definitely worth reading. <laughs> yes, yeah, read it. Check out the website. It's pretty cool. And if you're at it, you know, you can head over to... I'll include my notes in, uh, of course, with the show, but uh, if you're, you want more information on objectivism, Wikipedia has, of course, great write-ups on it. Uh, you can get, get the full skinny there. Uh, that's all I have to say about it. That good that stuff. should do it well. It is a good book. I thank you, Cafe good. Ninja. Oh, Dan, it was my pleasure. We'll have to do another one, another book review. Oh gosh, are we going to start having like a Tilt's Book of the Month Club or something? <laughs> yeah, the Book of the Month Club. <laughs> What's Oprah's book <laughs> this month? Yeah. Oh gosh, well, I no! Stop don't stop <laughs> No, stop. <laughs> You don't want to do Oprah's Book of the Month? <laughs> no. What is Oprah's Book of the Month? I don't know. I'll I'll tell you what. If we make Damon and and Freedom TM the the next two books, then we're good. Which one? What is it? Did you stop recording? No, no. not yet. Great. <laughs> okay, so. The two books that I've read recently that have gotten me as pumped as Atlas Shrugged were both by Daniel Suarez 
The first one is called Daemon, like a computer Daemon, D-A-E-M-O-N. And the mm -hmm. second sequel is Freedom TM, trademark. Okay, you know, which is really weird, because I actually went over to the Oprah Book Club website, and okay. right on the front cover is she's holding up a book called Freedom, a Novel, and I thought that you actually meant that book. <laughs> no. Oh, no, I don't know. Oh, gosh, I hope, I, well, I mean, I hope. It, Daniel Suarez no, did a very good job no, of the book. Jonathan Franzen. Daniel Suarez, okay. huh? Daniel Suarez, and I can I can say that the audiobooks are actually minor productions. They are done very well. They don't have a full cast or anything, but it's more than one voice, and it's it's very well produced. I have to look into that. Maybe I'll pick it up. Start reading it. You say it's really good. It's really good. Especially for if for anybody who's into computers. Come on, the book's that. name is Damon. What do you think? Yeah, I don't know. Hello. I'm going to read that. Probably the, the the book that most profoundly affected me after I read Atlas Shrugged is I finally got around to reading Zen and the Art of Motorcycle Maintenance. Uh-huh. That, that, that... That had me think, pretty much. I read that. I, I'm pretty sure I read that right after Atlas Shrugged. Good book. Or did I read that before Atlas Shrugged? Anyway, I better stop the recording so Ken okay. can get his HPR. I thank you, man. Thank you. And You're everybody have welcome. a good My night. pleasure, my pleasure. Thank you for listening to Hack Republic Radio. HPR is sponsored by caro.net, so head on over to caro.net for all your hosting needs.